I invite you to turn tonight to Genesis chapters 45 and 46 as we resume our study there after our Advent series on Jesus the Savior. We came to the point where Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers, backing much further up. Remember Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. Jacob, who's given the name Israel, has 12 sons. And the brothers turned against Joseph and sold him into slavery. He went down into Egypt, but the Lord elevated him to become the second in command in Egypt and to prevent starvation of the famine. And Joseph, after testing his brothers, the Lord working in them, brought them to repentance and was reconciled with them and then is sending them home and to call for Father Jacob and his family to come down to Egypt to be saved from this famine. And so we're at Genesis 45, at verse 16. Joseph has just revealed himself to his brothers and wept upon them. And then we read at Genesis 45, verse 16, God's word. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, 
and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, Jalil. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram with his daughter Dinah, all the persons, his sons and his daughters, were 33. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Arai, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimnah, Ishua, Isuai, Beriah, and Sarah, their sister. The sons of Beriah were Heber, Melchel. These were the sons of Zilpah whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Belah, Betcher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ahai, Rosh, Bapim, Hupim, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jazil, Ganai, Jezer, and Shalem. These were the sons of Bilhah whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body besides Jacob's sons' wives were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. There we end the reading of Scripture, and we turn to God to ask for his blessings. We bow together. Our Father in heaven, we know that Jesus Christ reigns because his word is still preached upon the earth. 
And we pray that all the seeds sown on this Lord's Day will bear fruit, that Satan will not be able to snatch them away, that they will find well-groomed soil, cultivated, rich, and that you'll produce there a harvest. We pray for your word preached in Costa Rica today. We pray for the labors of Reverend Bill Green and for Pastor Daniel Lobo. Care, Lord, for your word there and nourish your people, strengthen the churches. We pray for Reverend Green's daughter-in-law as well. We thank you for your blessing and help to her and her cancer. We pray for your continued grace to this young family to their children, to the needs of Amber. We pray you'd have mercy upon her. And Father, we ask for your help to us tonight because we too often presume our own ability to be benefited by your word. But it does us no good unless you, O God, give the working of your spirit. So help us, O Lord, we pray. And glorify your name in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The congregation of Christ, we enter in today upon a new year as we considered this morning. And we recognize that our life is a journey and we're a pilgrim people. Sometimes our, our journey is marked out in our minds by geographical moves. And we've made some of those, many of us have. When I was living in the Midwest, if I told people I'd moved from California up to Oregon when I was a boy, and then I'd gone off to school in Iowa, and then Georgia, and then Chicago, and people would, would be interested. They'd be curious. But here, of course, to say you moved doesn't mean much, because most all of you have moved from somewhere. In the Midwest, many people live within 30 minutes of where they were born. Some people in the same house they were born in. But here, we're a people who've, who've moved a lot, some of you a lot. But you know, whether we've moved geographically or not, we are defined by Scripture as a pilgrim people because we're, we're on a journey. And the movements of our lives are from one day to another, from one year to another. We enter a, a new year, 2023, and from one trial to another, from one joy to another, but always pressing towards a goal. And so we're a people on the move. We're a pilgrim people. As you read through the book of Genesis, that pilgrimage often is displayed in geographical relocation. In fact, the book of Genesis is the story of a lot of movements, isn't it? Not all of them were voluntary, some quite compulsory. Think of the very first move in the Bible was out of the Garden of Eden. But then God, in his mercy, he called Abram from Ur the Chaldeans to give up his home and the gods and his people and to go to a land God would show him. Think of Isaac, who tried to live in different spots, and the Philistines pushed him out. He had to move. You think of of Father Jacob, who's in our text tonight. You remember his move? His brother wanted to kill him. He had to flee the land of promise and go north to his mother's family in Padanaram to escape the murder of his brother. And then remember his father, Laban, dealt with him not very well, quite shrewdly, and so he had to flee his father-in-law. And now, really, the biggest move of his life tonight, to move down to Egypt with his whole family. But the Lord reminds us that he, the covenant Lord, oversees all the moves of his people's lives. He leads, he directs, he provides for his people wherever he and his providence sends them. He teaches them to sing the kinds of songs we've sung tonight, right? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He won't let my feet slip. 
Or Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And that's glorious news for a pilgrim people as we make our way upon this earth through all of our trials and joys, through all the changes of seasons and years, as we grow older, God is with us. As we travel through this life, it's not just that God follows after us, trying to catch up to us, but it's that God goes before us. God goes before us. And so the story of the church's pilgrimage to the great city, the new Jerusalem, is the story of God leading the way, opening the way, protecting his people on the way. And now God will bring his people down to Egypt to save them from famine, to save them from the Canaanite culture, and to prepare them for what will be the defining moment of the Old Testament church, the Exodus. Because from that moment forward, 400 years from now in our text, when God leads his people out of Egypt, this will be now God's claim upon his people To the end of the Old Testament, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that will be the great claim and the great paradigm of salvation pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. So tonight we see that the Lord lovingly moves his church down to Egypt because he is the God of our pilgrimage. And so we want to look at the path that God makes and the promise that God gives and the plan that God offers accomplishes the path, the promise, the plan. Well, God is moving his people down to Egypt so that they won't starve to death because there's a famine and because they are being affected by the, the sinful Canaanite culture as Judah had married an unbelieving wife and so forth and God wants to now insulate his people from the Canaanite culture as they grow and develop. And God in his great way of bringing them down to Egypt, honors his people in a, in a wonderful way, doesn't he? Because we read that after Joseph now has revealed himself to his brothers and has wept over them, and this brother they thought was a slave down in some field in Egypt or long since dead, is now revealed to them as the ruler of Egypt. Now Pharaoh and his household hear all what's going on. Joseph's brothers are here. And Pharaoh's heart is pleased by the news, and Pharaoh actively engages in blessing this family. He, he tells them, you know, go down, bring, go up to, to Canaan, bring the family down to Egypt. Here, take carts with you. Here, I'll give you provisions. I'm going to give you the best of the land. You can leave all your things behind. This is an expense-paid move to Egypt, and I'll give you the best things when you get here. And it's quite remarkable, isn't it? And the Lord is showing his people that as they live in this world, it's the Lord who rules over the world for the sake of his church. At some points in scripture, God reveals that that he's the Lord of creation. He's able to use all his power over the natural realm for the good of his people. But he also reveals that he's able to use all of his power over the unbelieving world for the sake of his church. Even kings are moved to action to bless the church. And so God makes a place for his people in the heart of a pagan king, and God makes a place for his people in the middle of a pagan land. Because the Lord is king, and this is his world. And we we ought to remember that as we make our way through it. The king's heart is a stream 
of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And God wills to turn the hearts of kings in directions that benefit his people. So we don't need to fear the world, but we need to trust our God. Now, if you look with me at Psalm 105, we have an interpretation upon all of this and a remembrance of all of this. In Psalm 105, it, it calls believers to give thanks to the Lord, to glory in his name, to remember his marvelous works. Verse 6, O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones, remember all that God has done for you. And then the writer, Psalm 105, verse 7, begins to recount that he is the Lord our God. His judgments are on all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. Verse 9, the covenant he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, confirmed it to Jacob for a statute. Verse 11, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another... From one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. This is the God we serve. In the midst of the world, God keeps watch over his people and cares for his people, causing even unbelieving authorities to serve the good of his church. I'm fond of that little story by... Uh, that White Cross includes, again, in that book, um, the shorter catechism illustrated, but he tells of a godly woman who, who said that she would never be in want because God provides all her needs. And then in a time of persecution, she's brought before a judge, and the judge says to her, I've often wished to have you in my power, and now I shall send you to prison, and then how will you be fed? And she so boldly replied, If it be my heavenly Father's pleasure, I shall be fed from your table. And the judge's wife, who happened to be there, was so moved by her courage and firmness that the judge's wife would send food to her in prison from the judge's table. And the judge's wife was led to conversion. The Lord does what he wants, doesn't he? We don't have to fear the world. Our God moves the hearts of the world for the sake of his church, not always how we might want at the moment or expect. We see brothers and sisters persecuted. But this is our Father's world, and he rules all things. Psalm 105 goes on to talk about Joseph. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. And our text goes on in Genesis to show that God provides not just through the world, but God provides also through the church and through the ones he appoints and raises up. And so it's not just Pharaoh that would lavish help upon the Old Testament church, But then we read about Joseph in verse 21 and following. He gives the carts as Pharaoh commanded, but then Joseph also gives provisions and he gives changes of garments. And you have to pause there and just capture in your mind the irony of the moment. Joseph has just revealed himself to his brothers. The last time that they knew they were looking at Joseph was when they had stripped him of his coat of many colors. And sold him as a slave down into Egypt. And now Joseph basically owns Egypt. And he's clothing his brothers and bringing them into this place of abundance. 
It's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? Christ, whom our sin, as it were, stripped naked, lives to clothe us in his righteousness before God and with everything we need for life and godliness. Well, the brothers are lavished with all these blessings, and they are a foreshadowing of what God had told Abraham all the way back in chapter 15. God told Abraham that he would give his descendants the land of Canaan, but he said, Genesis 15, verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. That's a promise of slavery in Egypt. Verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Remember when the exodus occurs, God tells the Israelites to ask of their neighbor for riches and and, and the Egyptians are all too happy to load them up with gold and silver. And they leave a rich people. And here is a foreshadowing of that as Jake, Joseph has loaded his brothers with wealth. But the greatest blessing Joseph gives to his brothers is found in verse 24. So he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. And what Joseph really seems to be saying is don't fall into quarreling. They've got to go home and tell now Father Jacob that Joseph is alive. Uh, they got some talking to do, right? I don't know what they actually said, but you can imagine that there's a bit of tension in their hearts. I mean, there's joy in their lives, but, but there's tension now. They might blame each other about what happened when they sold Joseph into slavery. And Joseph says to them, no. Don't look back now. I've extended to you forgiveness. I've, I've shown you grace. Now go forward in the way of that mercy. Live in the light of that forgiveness. You can't go back and redo what you, what you did wrong, but you can find each other in the mercy I've shown to you. And again, that's how the gospel works, isn't it? That, that we can't go back and fix our mistakes, can we? Not most of the time. There's things we wish we could do over, but we can't. But God extends grace to us. And in that grace, we find each other. And in that grace, then we are reconciled and go forward together. And they go home then and they tell Father Jacob, or Israel as the name God gave him, that Joseph is alive. He's the ruler of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stands still. He, he's numb. He's been grieving for Joseph for more than 20 years, thinking that his favorite son, Joseph, is dead. And now, not only is his son alive, he's supposed to be the prime minister of Egypt. But the mounting evidence, all those carts, all the riches, at last, we read that he revives and says, I will go down to Joseph and see him. My seminary professor, Reverend Mark Vanderhart, suggests in his little Bible study that, that Jacob's revival here is comparable to the post-resurrection expressions. Remember when Jesus is said to be alive, people don't believe it, right? People can't believe what the women have reported, that he's alive. And Thomas says, I'll never believe unless I can see those wounds and touch them. Those Easter morning accounts of the gospel reveal people who can't believe it. They can't believe Christ is alive. Now, Joseph wasn't even really dead, right? He was just perceived to be dead. 
But of course, our Lord Jesus Christ really did die, didn't he? He went all the way down, down, not just to Egypt and to prison, but he went all the way to bear the full curse of God, to suffer hell on the cross, to go to, to death. But he was raised from the dead. And just as the life of Joseph now, the resurrection of Joseph, as it were, means a new chapter in the history of the church. How much more so the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ means a brand new chapter for God's people upon the earth and a new future. Jesus Christ lives. And isn't it amazing that though Psalm 105 can say God sent Joseph ahead of them to prepare a place for them. It's John 14 where Jesus tells that he goes before us to prepare a place for us and he will come again for us to take us to be where he is. And so what do we see, brothers and sisters? We see a God who's preparing the way. He's always making a path for his people in this world. It's not, it's not that we're the mighty conquerors and we're pioneering a path, but it's that Christ has gone before us, right? And we are following him. Christ has gone before us, and he's opened up a path through this world and a path into heaven by his death and by his obedience, by his righteousness, and he's prepared a place for us with God forever. But then secondly, this this evening, let's look at the promise that God gives. The path of our pilgrimage is one God has made in Christ Jesus, but then we see the promise that God gives. Now, Jacob has has said, believing that Joseph is alive, says, It's enough. Joseph's alive. I will go to him, see him before I die. And he begins his journey. But as he begins his journey, Father Jacob apparently has doubts. I think as you read verses 1 and what follows there, that's the situation. That Father Jacob has having second thoughts. What am I doing going to Egypt? This is a huge move. I'm going to take my whole family, 70 people, down to Egypt. And what's going to happen when we get there? Will Pharaoh really treat us well? What kind of place will we get? Maybe we're going to starve in Egypt now. And whatever other questions he had, above all, this question must have have weighed upon Father Jacob. What am I doing leaving the promised land? This is the land God promised to Abraham and to my father Isaac, and I'm going to leave the land of promise. And on top of that, of all places I'm going to go to when I leave to Egypt, when Abraham went down to Egypt, you recall, it didn't go very well. He passed off Sarah as his sister, and he almost lost her. Future of the church almost came to a screeching halt. And then... Jacob's dad Isaac wanted to go down to Egypt. And God in chapter 26 stopped him. Do not go down to Egypt. Now stay here. I'm going to care for you here. You can imagine that Father Jacob had his doubts. But what do we read? We read that Israel, Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Jacob comes down to the southern border of the promised land and he calls upon the God of his father Isaac. But what's he doing? Well, in one sense, he's just doing what his father Isaac had done. Isaac had built an altar there, the Lord had met him there. But it seems that, that Jacob is afraid. Jacob is wondering if what he's doing is righteous. Jacob is reaching out to the Lord of the covenant and saying, do I have permission to leave? Is this the right thing to do? And God answers him. Verse 2, Jacob, 
Verse 3, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. Joseph's going to close your eyes as you die. What a merciful covenant, Lord, right? To meet this man in the midst of all of his complexity here and confusion. We, we experience moments in our lives, don't we, that we don't know the right way to go. We cry out to God. Does God care? Will God speak? And we don't get special revelation, but we do get a God who guides by his word and spirit. God is merciful here, saying the words that echo down. Somebody said it's the most frequent commander in all of Scripture. Do not fear. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. God's going to be with him as he leaves the promised land. In fact, God adds here, a new detail to that old promise of many children. One commentator puts it like this, although God had promised several times that he would make the patriarchs into a great nation, this is the first time he announces that this formation will take place well outside the border of the promised land in Egypt. Egypt will become the womb of this great nation. A nation is to be formed in the relative relatively secluded Egyptian region of Goshen, rather than in Canaan. Canaan's not a magical land. Canaan doesn't have powers. God has powers, and he is saying, I'm going to make you into a great people. I'm going to multiply you in Egypt. And I'm going to do it in a way that safeguards you. And yes, I'm going to allow you to be enslaved, God told Abraham, but it's in order to bring you out. And always this is the promise And this is the great promise, isn't it? God says to Father Jacob, I will go down with you to Egypt. I will be with you. I will be with you. God will reveal himself as the God who is with his people, brings them out. God will, in the Exodus, camp beside his people, his tent among their tents. God will reveal that he's not a a local deity confined to a certain region. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and will be with his people And this promise, you know, do not fear, I am with you, will grow in its power and revelation throughout all the Old Testament. Until at last, God with us, the Emmanuel, appears. And after he dies for our sins and rises from the dead, and as he commissions his apostles to go out now into all the nations and make disciples, he says, and lo, I am with you always. I will be with you always to the end of the age. What an amazing word that is of God in Scripture to his pilgrim people. Have we grasped the wonder of that assurance that God will be with us? In the New Covenant, it's not just that that we're living now as a, a people insulated among the nations but now in the new covenant God actually sends his church outward to the nations to make disciples of them and that's the great promise that as you live in this world now you're not just so many survivors but more than conquerors through Christ who loved you and and you're called to stand for your God in this world knowing that the Lord is with you you know when Christ sends out his apostles he says to his his army his commissioned army he says something that that no captain has ever been able to say before, right? Because, because there's been some great captains who, who have gone with their soldiers and, 
and who have led the way and who have been men who have been respected and loved and all of that, but no captain could ever say, I'm going to be with you always. Might not be with you. Might, might get reassigned or might get shot. Might. But Jesus says, look, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And do you remember the missionary John G. Payton and how that promise of Matthew 28 became for him really the center point of his life? John G. Payton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, uh, which is now called Von Nuatu, and sort of islands over there in the South Sea, South Pacific, by Australia and New Zealand. But he was a a man born in Scotland, ordained to be a missionary in 1858, and he goes to these islands where there's a savage people. The first missionaries to land there were clubbed to death within a few moments of landing on the shore. And so he goes with great uncertainty, goes to a, a violent people, a superstitious people, immediately loses his wife and his only child. And yet as you read his autobiography, if you haven't read it, you might Try that in the new year here. John G. Payton. He tells how Matthew 28, verse 20, becomes the promise that he stakes his life upon. After a measles epidemic killed thousands of people on the islands and the missionaries were blamed, Payton writes in his autobiography, During the crisis I felt generally generally calm and firm of soul, standing erect and with my whole weight on the promise, lo, I am with you always. Precious promise, how often I adore Jesus for it and rejoice in it. Blessed be his name. And then as he writes a more general summary of his life, he says, without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all of the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. In his words, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, he became so real that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power. It is this sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face And smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring and seeing him who is invisible. This was the life of Peyton to learn to depend on that promise. And then he tells them an episode when they were all hunting down to kill him. Hundreds of of angry natives and an unreliable chief suggested that he climb up in a tree and so he did not knowing what that would mean and if he would be betrayed and all of that but Peyton could write being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends I though perplexed felt it best to obey I climbed to the tree and was left there alone in the bush the hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone, yet not alone, 
If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? What does it mean for the church to learn what God means when he says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not fear, for I am with you. It's been God's word to his people throughout the ages. And it has been not lost in the New Testament, but it has been enhanced by the death and resurrection of the Christ who lives always to intercede for us. Do not fear. For I am with you to the very end of the age. And that's a comfort for the church of Christ. And it's to be a comfort for the soul of each one of God's people. But it's also to be the strength by which we engage the calling that God has given us upon the face of the earth. And could it be that if we would grab more tightly to this promise that we might attempt greater things for our Lord and Savior in this coming year. That instead of a castle mentality trying simply to survive, we might take the word forward by the grace of God. Can you ask yourself, can you pray to God and say, what ministry would you have me engage in this year? What opportunities would you have me seize? Where am I in fear holding back from the way you would have me go or speak to the one you would have me speak? Is there someone here tonight whom the Lord would raise up as a missionary and send to a dangerous place? How does God do that? He gives people conviction of the promise, I am with you. Do not fear. I will be with you. And we can only be a faithful people to our God if we take hold of that promise that we learn to have a friend who will never fail us. And if we don't need that promise, if we're quite content without it, it's not one that we cling to, then maybe we're not walking in obedience to the Lord. Because if we don't step forward in faith before our God, then, then we think we're pretty secure, don't we? But it's when we move out, when we seek to live for the Lord, when we seek to battle the prince of the air, the hostilities of this world, that we need such a friend. Jacob is called to leave it all and to go to a land he doesn't know, but to hold to the promise of the covenant, Lord, I'm with you. Brothers and sisters, so are we. But in all of this, it's not our great wisdom, our great plans, but it's the Lord's. And that's the final thing I draw your attention to tonight. Not just... The path God makes for us in Christ, the promise God gives to us in Christ, but the plan God accomplishes in Christ. The text emphasizes that all of Jacob's family goes down to Egypt. No one, as one writer says, no one is left behind to hold the fort. We're not leaving anything behind. There's not someone here who's going to keep a spot in case it don't work out. Nope, they all go, and they leave the land in the hand of God, the land of Canaan. And what we have here in our text is a long list of names telling us specifically who went, 
revealing a God who knows his people by name and knows what he's doing with them. And commentators point out the, the interesting thing about the list here is that there's a lot of sevens, repeated multiples of seven. For instance, in verse 22, these were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. 14 is two times seven. And her maid, Bilhah, remember Jacob has two wives, Rachel and Leah, and then he has two other wives, the, the maid servants or concubines, the maids of the wives who are given to him as wives, and they have children. That's who ends up with 12 sons. But Bilhah said to be born to her are seven persons, so they have 21 together between, between the, the two women, which is three times seven. And then Jacob's other wife, Leah, has 33 children and grandchildren, and her maid servant Zilpah has 16, so they have 49 between Leah and Zilpah, which is seven times seven. But as Sidney Gradonis writes, the most important multiple of seven is listed at the end of verse 27. We read that all the persons of Jacob's household who came to Egypt were 70. And 70, of course, is 10 times 7. 10 is the number of fullness and 7 the number of perfection. So 70 is the full, complete number of God's people. Now, how you end up with 70, there's some debate about that. We won't get into that. Whether it's an exact number or a round number. But what is God saying with this number? He seems to be saying that this represents a complete population. Some commentators look back to Genesis 10, where you have the table of nations, which some suggest comes out to 70. And so through Noah's sons comes a new world population, the 70 nations. But now through Jacob's family comes a new humanity, a new race, a new community. And we know that through Jacob's family will come the true Israelite, Jesus Christ, who will bring forth that new community and bring it to glory. And so God seems to be suggesting here in all of these numbers that his plan is right on course. What God had set out to do to make for himself a people is what he is doing, what he will do, and what he will accomplish. There has occurred here in the book of Genesis a glorious reunion now Jacob's brothers who were murderers and liars and thieves and sexually immoral have by God's trials brought to them through Joseph have been sifted and they've been tried and through this pressure they have come to to be humbled and they've been restored and reunited to to Joseph. God has, has done something with this fractured church. He's bringing these people together. A community is being restored. In the midst of all the ugliness, God has been diligent about his purpose. His plan is not thwarted. He will have an elect eternal community to live with him forever. And Jacob's outlook has drastically changed now, Father Jacob, right? Because, because now Father Jacob comes down there with, with all his family and he, he meets Joseph. And then at the end of our text, at verse 30, he says to his son Joseph, who he hadn't seen for more than two decades, he says, now let me die since I've seen your face because you are still alive. And remember before when he thought Joseph died, he, said he would not be comforted. He refused to be comforted. And he said, no, but, but I'm going to go down to my grave in sorrow. But now he seems to be a new man. It's actually reminiscent, isn't it, of what 
of what Simeon will say. Simeon, as we saw, Luke chapter 2, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples. Simeon sees the Christ, and he speaks those words. Jacob sees Joseph, and he speaks these words. And I think God is showing us that Jacob saw more than just the face of his son. He saw the face of God. He saw saw a God who's bringing his plan to fruition. That in the Lord God, the purpose for Jacob's family is not failing. But the plan is on schedule. God will have a new people. And that's the final thing that we need to be encouraged by tonight, that that God's plan will be accomplished. This is why we can keep praying for for unbelieving loved ones. We can keep working at reconciliation where there's hurts in the body of Christ. And this is why we can keep bringing the gospel to a world that often seems not to care the least bit, because God will accomplish his purpose. We don't know all the winds and hows and wheres, but we know it's true. So we can engage in hospitality, and we can engage in evangelism, and we can work at love and reconciliation, repentance and confession of sins and forgiveness. And all these things we find in our text and in the chapters before this, because in all of this, in the big mass, God is working out a plan and a purpose. Until that great day. When we come to the best move of our life, we who are banished from the garden will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth. You see, brothers and sisters, it's all one story. The whole book, it's all one story. It's God's plan, and it's being accomplished. So as we look forward into a new year, We remind ourselves that the path is not of our wisdom and our smarts. It's the path God's prepared in Christ. And as we seek to march down that path, we know this. The Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. He will not fail. And when we're confused and it all seems to come to nothing, then we remind ourselves God's purpose will stand. God has a plan. It will be accomplished. We take that to ourselves as the church of Christ and as a congregation. We may apply this to ourselves and our lives personally also. As we face trials and difficulties for a pilgrim people. With a path. With a promise. And governed by God's plan. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your ways with your people throughout the ages. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who has gone before us. We acknowledge that he is the great pioneer. He has opened up the trail. He has paved a path by his precious blood. We pray he'd guide us by his spirit. He'd give us courage in the long journey. And that you, Lord, will accomplish your great plan when you will have a people. When you have the full number you have gathered all of your elect to live with you eternally. Well, glory be to you, God, in Jesus' name, amen.